Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. What a morning. What an exciting time to be alive. I've got to tell you, so many things have already happened this morning. I had to hold a giant flat screen TV aloft by myself for almost 45 minutes this morning for my wife and I to try to fix something. And just the excitement builds from there. Um, so I'm actually in studio for the first, the AI, the official uh, Remnant Studio of Lore. Um, and I don't mean Data's brother from Star Trek. I mean uh, Legend. Um, uh, and I'm here with the original producer and the person who I blame somewhere between 99% and 100% for the no you won't this is a podcast <laughs> gag that I have been cursed with um, and I cannot get rid of under any circumstances. Uh, none other than Jack Butler, who I believe now is, are you, what are you, submissions editor? Yeah, submissions editor for Nash Review Online. Um, very exciting. Jack, welcome back to The Remnant. No, you won't. This, oh, Late. crap. Yeah. Uh, we need to start over. No, I'm no. kidding. Uh, yep. I can't make, so now I'm stuck with that too. I'm, I'm going to have to figure out some way to make that interesting at the very end. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Thank yeah. you for having me back here. It's good to be back. I'm highly confident it can't be made interesting. Um. <laughs> well, we'll find out, <laughs> won't we? Uh-huh. All right. So uh, welcome. Welcome. You also have your own, you still have your own uh, Young American uh, podcast? Let's uh, not get into that right now. Okay. But you are still a Young American. Uh, I don't even know if that's true. I'm turning 30 in three months. Are you really? Yeah. Wow. So. Wow. Wow, man, you're old. I am old. I, I accept it. Um, I don't trust myself, although I never did. So, so while you were still a 20-something, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is that you've actually been writing about um, and thinking about what is going on with the youngs right now on the right. And this is something that I've been kind of obsessed with of late um, myself, but I also have the problem of not wanting to put too much attention on young people being jackasses because it was ever thus we also, but we live in an economy. We live in an attention economy. And so like, if I start going after these yachts who run the New York young Republicans, I'm doing them a favor, right. Or the American moment people and all that kind of stuff. But it also, it's a, it's a tension, right? Cause on the other hand, you want to maintain moral and ideological hygiene of the right. And when these kids are doing and saying and being asinine, um, it's a weird balance. So that's one of the reasons why I brought you in here. <laughs> you need a capo regime to do your dirty work. Well, no, I just need someone who's more on the front lines of all of this stuff mm -hmm. to explain some of this stuff going on with me. So um, what the hell is wrong with the young right? 
loaded question. So, a couple of things I should stipulate up front, I suppose. One is that perhaps the most common complaint I have gotten in my my attempts to figure this out and my my engagements with people who disagree with me is that I am only going after my own side and there's no utility in doing this at the moment when there are so many threats from the left and I don't know what time it is. It's as of recording 1023 a.m. According to my Timex Iron Man watch, just for the record. Uh, but I, I find this absurd for all sorts of reasons. But we should also just, we should explain this phrase. Do you know what time it is, right? It originated out of the world of the Claremont Institute, and it refers to one's apparent acknowledgement of the gravity of the present political moment. Right. We are on the precipice of cataclysm, and you must act accordingly. And if you don't right. know what time it is, you are sh you're one of the sheeple who thinks the problem isn't as bad as it really is. Something exactly. like that. Okay. So, but it, just look at the, I find this, this is absurd for all sorts of reasons, but one of them, just look at the the history of the conservative movement, especially as outlined by Matt Connetti in his recent book, The Right. And look at, for example, let, let's uh, let's pick on the Claremont Institute people for a second. Look at Harry Jaffa. <laughs> he was fighting with people on the right all the time, including people who worked in this building, Irving Kristol, Martin Diamond. This is... I, William F. Buckley famously said, if you think it's hard... Uh, um, Disagreeing with Harry Jaffa, try agreeing with him. Right. So I've, it can get to a point where you're doing it for its own sake or you only argue with people on the right. But there, a kind of disputation has always been a feature of conservatism. So, but that doesn't really answer your question of what's going on with the young right. Okay. So before we, before you actually go on to answer my question with the young right, there's another point to be made about that. That argument. I like that we're not even, we haven't even really begun. We're already off track. That's the right. remnant has not changed. Um, the, the chief problem with that claim that you're only attacking the right is that the people you're criticizing, all they do is attack the right. right. They, they talk about how the, you know, the, the old regime needs to go. The old fusionist consensus needs to go. Neocons, rhinos all need to go. We're going to, you know, I, I get, I can now get these young kids telling me I'm going to be eliminated. Mm, right. Yes. Um, and which seems to cross the minimal definitional requirements of disputatiousness. Uh -huh. uh, so as to say, people who say, I shouldn't be criticizing the right, I shouldn't be shooting rightward, um, who actually talk as if um, once they seize the radio stations, they're going to they're gonna cleanse the ranks of the kulaks entirely, right. uh, should not be making that criticism. Yes, yes. So, so what's going on with the right, young right? The, well, the other thing, briefly, finally, on that, on that digression, <laughs> they're trying to redefine what right is and, mm -hmm. and say, like, if you, if you have a commitment to free markets, for example, then you are now on the left or something like that, right. which is just absurd. But what's going on in the young right? So I still think we are living in the aftermath of the 2016 election, which uh, on one remnant, now bonus points to whichever person is crazy enough to figure out which episode this, this is from, you called it a an overinterpreted phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So there are still a lot of people trying to figure out what exactly that election meant. And a lot of people with pre-existing agendas or grievances trying to leverage it for the advantage of their own faction. So that is one factor that's going on. Another factor that is happening, and this is one that I think it's important to concede at the very least, is that there have been serious uh, problems and 
shortcomings with uh, conservatism up to that point. And I think that it will be, as much as I dispute and argue with people that I disagree with these days on the right, I don't know if I'll actually be able to get anywhere without accepting the legitimacy of certain, not all, certain of their complaints and without yielding on certain points about areas where conservatism has fallen short. Uh, but this is not an invitation for me to abandon everything that I believe, which I'm not going to do, but it is a reason for conservatives to be and to do better, to make people like that basically deprive them of oxygen. So, right, yeah. so we will put a pin in your complete and total capitulation and surrender to, mm -hmm. the, pr to the premise of the, your opposition later. Okay, fair enough. And we will come back and we will discuss what these things that you think the conservative movement failed on. Because, to be honest, I mean, I'm joking around, but obviously the conservative movement made mistakes. Yes. And went awry in different ways. But I generally think that the ways it went awry aren't the ways that the people you're arguing with think. Well, yes, that, and that's an important thing to clarify. But we'll clarify that later. Yes, yes. Clarifying, clarification to come. Okay, so what is wrong with the young right 12 minutes into this podcast? <laughs> well, I think they're looking for... We're, right. we're trying, let's stop this again. <laughs> when we're talking about the young right. We're not talking about like normal. No, not at all. So we're talking about normal, normal voters, right? We're talking about very online people. Talking about very online people. We're talking especially about young, let's be honest, dudes. Mm -hmm. Let's be even more honest in the Acela corridor mm -hmm. who are uh, in many cases just below levels of elite status that they want. And so I think that it's it's very fair to assert that there is an element of interleague status competition that is motivating a good deal of this. There is a perception that certain people who don't deserve positions of influence and power have them, and so they need to be flushed out, eliminated, to mm -hmm, use the word, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is invoked. Liquidated even. Liquid, yeah, perhaps, <laughs> uh, perhaps. And so, yeah, that. so what is wrong? We still haven't answered what is wrong with the, with the young right. It's the, the answer is that... There are people looking for meaning, understandably, but finding it in all the wrong places. They're finding it in Twitter. They're finding it in Costin uh, Alamariu, who we'll get into in a bit, I hope. And th this is why I think that it's important to take some of these these complaints seriously, because if they're if they're simply if all of them are simply dismissed, then these people will only feel vindicated in their discontent with the present state, both of the world as a whole and of the conservative movement in particular. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the short answer of what's wrong. Okay, so fair enough. We talked about their motives, a little bit about their feelings, um, <laughs> which I care so much about. I know uh, you do. But, if, but what, you, what you described with the young right today, arguably you could say, I mean, looking in the wrong places tells you something normative and substantive, right? But like, give me some for instances, some examples of how you think uh, these people are astray. I mean, I can give you some of my own, but um, like do young, does the, uh, and I'm, I'm glad we're saying right and not young conservatives, um, but does the sort of very online right today, let's start with, you know, does it believe in small government? Does it believe in, um, constitutionalism? Does it believe in free markets? Does it believe in, you know, foreign policy is always fraught. And I've got a question about that in a second, but, um, is there a actual ideological agenda here that 
is the actual motivating factor or is it that they're picking, they're saying we want to do the opposite of what the, the establishment is doing as a elite, as a strategy for replacing the current elite? I guess the answer is a little bit of both, but in the, in the sense of the former question of what the concrete agendas are, there's a couple, and they're they're actually at odds with each other. And I can give uh, thirty thousand foot summaries of a few of them. Or I guess I'll start with two of them. So you have national conservatism, which we can get into more detail about later, which essentially believes that the conservatism of the past fifty plus years has not sufficiently focused on interests directly pertaining to the nation itself, its borders, its trade with other countries, and uh, it's the way that it, the, it's foreign policy relative to other nations as well. Like these things have been, there's been an overriding focus on uh, the, the interests almost of other nations or of how to better incorporate this country with other polities. And this globalism. Can, yeah, globalism. So that's one thing. And then on the other hand, you have uh, the integralists who, I mean, this is essentially, they, sometimes they call themselves political Catholics now, but they want at some point the, the U.S. government to become functionally Catholic, mm -hmm. to turn this, this country somehow into a confessional state that it's never actually been, to motivate Catholic, or to use um, the state to achieve Catholic, explicitly Catholic ends. And these things are in tension with each other. You can see this in the way that, for example, Yoram Hazonia, a leading national conservative, who at one point was in this very he was. room. With, he was. Which is kind of funny to think about. Uh, you see him arguing with, for example, Patrick Deneen, uh, integralist figure. Uh, there, there are all sorts of reasons for this, but I, I think one of them is that integralism as a political movement becomes a bit of a universalist thing because it's a Catholic thing. And so you're, you're not going to find that really, at the end of the day, limiting itself to solely the interests of the American nation. Maybe they'll find a way to finagle that. But there, if, you, if you see people like uh, Harvard Law Professor Adrian Vermeule talking about the empire of uh, Lady Guadalupe, they, they think of something <laughs> explicitly uh, multinational, uh, a multinational corporation, perhaps that extends beyond U.S. borders and incorporates other polities uh, because it's a faith that's inherently universal. So, I mean, Catholic actually kind of means yes, universal, it does. Yes, right? It does. So the, these things, they, they have various odd points of departure from one another, but they all seem to agree, to paraphrase that, uh, that Lincoln quote that begins, that Matt Cotton opens the right with, they all agree that something about the status quo is dissatisfactory. And th this as a rhetorical device can be extremely powerful because they can essentially, anything that is wrong or bad right now, that becomes my fault or your mm -hmm. fault. And like, we're the problem. We're the gatekeepers of the status quo. And this, in a lot of ways, excuses them from having to actually answer specifics about what they want or they, what they want to do. They just, the answer is that, well, the current people in charge are the problem. And we'll, we'll figure things out once they're gone. In that sense, it's it reminds me a little bit, maybe a, a little bit more than a little bit of the way that uh, Marxists talk and talked. So, uh, do we have some right wing Marxists around these days? Maybe. Well, I mean, I, I have to keep my powder dry because it's inappropriate for me to talk in any great detail about it. But I, I'm reading 
the galleys for Patrick Deneen's new book as I'm reviewing it for uh, the Acton Institute, which should oh. be great for comments. And, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot of that in there. And um, yeah. So like when the, 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 NatCon's first, the national conservatism stuff first emerged. And then the post-liberal integralist stuff emerged, which was a little later, right? It was like a few years later. The, the I feel like the, the, the Hazoni crowd got attention first. And yeah, then I think the, that timeline is right. And then the Deneen crowd got attention. But at the beginning, it kind of felt a little, and I'm sure both sides have some problem with this analogy, but at the beginning, it felt a little from a conservative, from a fusionist, traditional conservative perspective, um, it felt a little people's front of Judea versus uh, Judean people's front. Yeah, but, yes and no, because they, they but were no longer right now. Well, it's were, really different fronts. Well, yeah, they were overlapping considerably. NatCon two, the, the second national conservatism conference. There's a lot of these people have conferences a lot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, because in a sense, I feel like they're trying because the 2016 election was such an overinterpreted phenomenon and there's not yet a clear constituency for a lot of the ideas that they're selling there's a sense in which they're trying to engineer things from the top down. So they'll get the, they'll take the beltway first and then they'll find their candidates like across the country. Uh, so they have a lot of conferences. They all, they have a lot of instances where it's just like, okay, we'll all get together and talk to each other and tell each other how great we are. But anyway, at the first national conservatism or the second national conservatism conference, uh, the integralists and the NatCons were together. They shared a stage even. Mm -hmm. And at the third one, there was a split. So now they're at odds. Splitter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's over there. Uh, so yeah, the, these these movements are at odds. Although some people are overlapping figures, some people were at both NatCon three and this Steubenville conference that was held a month later to much fanfare uh, online. But uh, yeah, there there are now different strains. I don't know how how seriously the very online young right types take these distinctions. I think a lot of people, well, I, I've been thinking a lot about that passage from liberal fascism about the young kid who's like got his room full of mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. not communist paraphernalia and the next day it's all Nazi paraphernalia. Yeah. I think there are a lot of kids like that. But the, the root cause of that is that there are people who are for whatever reason uh, politically and perhaps even spiritually aimless. And they, they have not found something to actually root them in a tradition, which is a, a deeply unfortunate thing because they're finding, as I said, they're finding meaning in the wrong places. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could 
look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So before we get to this finding me in the wrong places part and and how Bronze Age perversion plays into that. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. So much to my dismay, as uh, far as I can tell, the Heritage Foundation has just gone, I, I don't want to say principled NatCon because I don't think there's a lot of principle to it. And I think that, you know, we're talking on um, Wednesday, um, Tucker Carlson was fired on Monday. Um, I kind of feel like, literally two thirds of the heritage foundations marketing and comms strategy just went out the window <laughs> um, because it really felt like Kevin Roberts was just simply saying, let's do whatever policies we can do that get me on Tucker's show more. And um, many such cases. Oh yes. Yeah. We can, <laughs> we can get into some of that, but like, you know, there, Tucker was the, the the loss of Tucker's show is a massive blow to this entire universe of people we're talking about because Tucker was deeply invested. I assume remains deeply invested in this idea of replacing the current quote unquote establishment with some other kind of establishment. And Tucker, I think was smart insofar as he understood drawing fine ideological distinctions between these different groups of rebels is sort of stupid. Yeah. Um, what you first got to do is you got to smash the existing Thing, and then you can negotiate who, you know, which pieces of Beirut go to the NatCons and which pieces of Beirut go to the, the, the integralists and whatnot. Right. Um, but it seems to me that heritage is clearly, if there is a coherent ideological argument, it's on the NatCon side of this argument, not the post-liberal integralist side of this argument. Yeah. So, right. Kevin Roberts condemned integralism from the stage in NatCon 3. So that, that was interesting. I was in the room for that. But I, it, it is hard to see. Heritage seems a little incoherent these days because there is ostensibly supposed to be this one voice policy. Mm -hmm. But it, if anything strikes me as an internally divided institution, uh, at the very least... And so how, how do you maintain the one voice policy if, if the one voice is, is, is schizophrenia? <laughs> so I don't know. I can't really make sense. But yeah, the, the, the Kevin Roberts public marketing and certain of the affiliations and associations that Heritage has been willing to make of late are 
Definitely in the Nat Connie direction. Mm -hmm. Not not so much in the Integralist direction. Although, in a few weeks, Kevin Roberts, I believe, will be sharing a stage with Patrick Deneen mm -hmm. to talk about that uh, yeah. Deneen's new book. So I'll be curious how that goes. Maybe they'll try to make nice, or maybe they'll get in a fist fight on stage. Sort of like, uh, was it? Um, it was Brent Bazell's wife who slapped a woman at CUA right over a feminist uh, over. Some uh, abortion-related thing. That sounds right. I, I I vaguely remember something like that. I, yeah, this I, what that happened. I believe at CUA. <laughs> so who knows? And um, then the 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 infamous uh, David French Sorbamari thing also at CUA. Yeah, CUA is the Catholic University of America for yes. Not to get all Pedoritian in my moderation of this, this scintillating conversation, but um, <laughs> someone's got to do it. Someone has to do it. It falls to me. Um, the burden always seems to fall. Um, so just out of you know. You share with me a certain um, fascination with origin stories, right? And like, uh, like pulling the threads on where these ideas come from. Yeah. Like, I get where the post-liberal integralist stuff comes from, right? I may not be an expert on it, but I kind of up to speed on Catholic history. I I I, I get the arguments. It because I've always been very sympathetic to Catholicism and a big defender of Catholicism historically. I get the arguments, but I'm not saying I agree with them, but like, I get it. Right. I like the Catholic church as an institution. I get the, 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 the sort of corporate, you know, the 19th century corporatism of their economics and all that kind of stuff. I get it. Fine. The Christian nationalism, NatCon stuff, right? I know that, Hazoni is part, he's constructed what, I, what my understanding is a very flawed intellectual history of English conservatism and of English nationalism and whatnot. But there's also the Christian nationalism stuff, right? Which is a little different. And I'm like, I keep asking people, what is the document? Like, what is, what is it like, what is the, like, like, oh, we trace this back to what? And the only answer I ever really get is basically like Henry the friggin' eighth, right? <laughs> it's like post, it's like Reformation stuff. Um, you know, we're breaking from the Catholic church. Um, uh, um, and when we do that, we create established faiths for nation states rather than one universal church kind of thing. But I, I like, where is this stuff? I like, like I can find this stuff like by Gladden Pippin and Patrick Deneen and, and Vermeule that's explaining what they're, where they're coming from. And as whether I think it's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs or, or not is a different argument. Where where is the this stuff on the 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 NatCon particularly Christian NatCon stuff coming from intellectually or do you not know either? You tell me. I I understand that world a, a bit less well because it's what it's well it's Protestant and mm -hmm. I just don't understand Protestantism as well as uh, as well as well. You, frankly, you would expect a Catholic to <laughs> so or you wouldn't expect rather you wouldn't expect a Catholic to understand it very well. They had their chance. <laughs> uh, but, but they, no, I lie. Some of my best friends are Protestants. Uh, don't worry. But where does it come from? I think it's a, it's a kind of melange. Uh -huh. Some of you will understand why I picked that word. Some of you will pick that up of various aspects and threads that you can, if you squint detect in American history, like the fact that some States had established churches early on in, in American history, they didn't end up lasting very long, but whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that, I don't know, that, that there was a Protestant majority in this country for a very long time, 
that socially enforced uh, a lot of um, moral foundations, but I don't know. It, it doesn't, I don't really see it that well either. I, I confess to, as I said, not understanding it that well to begin with, but I, I even squinting, I can't really understand the, the true origin story of that particular Christian nationalist stuff. And so that's why it strikes me as a kind of innovation. Yeah. And so for some, for some people who call themselves conservative, these conservatives these days, why, who I'm not sure they really deserve that label. Actually radicalism, they see it as a kind of advantage mm -hmm. and they, th there is a sense in which the acts that institutions such as national review took and have taken throughout its history to police the right and to make sure that certain things were verboten. These actually were hamstringing. These weakened the right because we did not embrace our radical fringe like the left has. And the left's radicalism has empowered it to make its long march, its uh, Gramscian march through the institutions. And now the right has to do something similar and it by somehow by uh, embracing its own radicalism, that it, it, its own uh, energy, you might you may hear that word a lot mm -hmm. when people like Hazoni talk. It, that's the way that the right can really achieve something. And so there there's a a real belief that whatever weird stuff is happening on the very online right, like whatever, however proximate it is to like actual Nazism or trollish, pseudo ironic, not actually ironic Nazism or what have you. If it can be channeled properly, then somehow it can be this great power that the right can harness and take advantage of. Yeah. I mean, obviously I think a lot of that is horse manure. Yes. Um, and, um, but I do think that the Christian nationalism stuff is distinct from the national populism stuff, the, the NatCon stuff, insofar as I kind of think the Christian nationalism stuff is a bigger thing because it's actually organic and grass level, grassroots, and not very online compared to these other things. Yeah, I think that's true. There's a lot. I mean, I was talking to a prominent evangelical intellectual recently, um, not named David French. <laughs> who um, was sort of running through all the different churches where the Christian nationalism stuff is a real threat. And that's a different thing than the very online, um, you know, uh, stuff, because you're actually talking about, you know, people in the pews who are right. buying on to this stuff. And, and it, and I, so I think of all of these things, the, the NatCons and the liberal and the post liberal, the inter, the integralists, they're wildly exaggerated in their importance because yes. they're, they're magnified by Twitter and by cable and whatnot. While I think the Christian nationalist thing is, is minimized because it's, it's much less of a DC strategy. Right. Kind of thing. It's not in a cell quarter strategy. It's like yes. a, it's a Kentucky strategy and a Kansas strategy, that kind of thing. And in that sense, uh, I have, I, I suppose there are some senses in which, as dismissive as I may have been earlier, jokingly about Protestants, mostly jokingly, I, ha I would have a, a greater degree of sympathy for people who, in a, an increasingly secularized age, are actually uh, trying to shore up uh, Christian religious belief in, in this country. But I, I guess my issue would come, come in uh, when there's a belief that 
there is some necessity to capture the state and turn it into an explicitly Christian thing. Right. Uh, but if people are, if people find a way to stay in the pews, to have good family and community lives, and well, that's great. I'm yeah. all in favor of that. I mean, that that's how, that's what this country needs more of. Less tweeting, more praying. Yeah. Look, I mean, again. And now, now Fox is going to fire me because I, <laughs> because I, mean, I, I believe in prayer. I have no... Um, no particular authority or or stature of any kind to be disputatious about other people's theology. <laughs> but so long as your theology isn't about a strategy for seizing power of the central government of the United States, have at it with your arguments mm. about theology and do what you want to do. And it's not my business, right? And that's sort of how I view a lot of this stuff. But just, I, I don't know if you saw this. Um, so Yoram Hazoni is this guy we've mentioned a few times. He's uh, the chief proponent for this. Uh, you know, he wrote this book called The Case for Nationalism. Um, and then conservatism, a rediscovery. Yes. And look, I, I think he makes some fine points. I think he kind of tries to take the entire warp and woof of Western civilization and squeeze it through the eye of a needle called Israel and apply it to the rest of the world. And I just don't think it makes a lot of sense. Well, especially, I think there's a footnote in conservatism or rediscovery where he quotes this remark Irving Kristol allegedly made that uh, only Christians should be allowed to vote in the United States. Yeah, I don't buy it. Uh, that, no, I, I don't believe that Kristol would have said it, but it, it that fits within, it seems that Hazoni is trying to create almost this weird bargain where like in Israel, the the Orthodox Jews are allowed to make Israel whatever it, they want it to be. As, and in, in exchange, right. Christians in the United States get to make the United States whatever they want it to be. Yeah, and I'm sure that kind of statement, particularly when he puts it in the lips of somebody else, um, goes over really well when he gets paid speeches to very Christian groups. Yes, but I certainly. Just, that's a garbage position. Um, and I... I don't want to say Irving never said it. I'm very skeptical that he ever said it seriously. It's a shame that we're not at 1150 17th Street because we could summon his ghost and ask him. We could. And and my hunch is if he ever did say it, what he was doing was criticizing how Jews vote. Right? <laughs> he wasn't necessarily saying that this country only belongs to Christians. He was just basically griping about the fact that, you know, as you know, Jews live like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. Um, is that, that's not a bingo, a remnant bingo square. It's is close. It? It's bingo okay. card adjacent. Yeah. We've been pretty, uh, relatively sparse on, on remnant bingo. We so have, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. And by the way, it's, it's, I meant to tell you, correct you before it's overdetermined, not overinterpreted. Same thing, but oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, so Yoram Hazoni is very online, very into this sort of, you know, how many Twitter followers does the Pope have kind of logic, right? Uh, he, 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 he tweets, by making blue checks available to everyone, <laughs> Elon Musk has initiated a democratic revolution against a ruling elite. The blue check really was a symbol of their power. Losing it mocks their vanity and wounds their pride. So true. And it's like, this is, it's just weird that there's the people who take Twitter so seriously and the people who took Tucker so seriously. And I think it's for the same reasons because those were the two major forms of amplification of, of their thing. Yes. And I mean, there was somebody who tweeted, I saw it the other day. They did a, they, they updated a gif of, remember the pirate in Mr. Phillips who takes over the, the yes, Somali pirate? Yes, I'm the captain now. Right. Instead, and now says, 
we're the celebrities now because they have blue checks. And it's like the idea like, uh, yeah, Brad Pitt's no longer a celebrity because he doesn't have a blue check. But Guy Rutnick, an assistant plumber in Cleveland, is a guy, celebrity because he has one. Guy you know? Denton? No, I kept it, you know. I anonymized it. Uh, guy Denton's not on Twitter. Um, Good for him. Or if he is, he lurks. Okay, so we got to get to this guy. So I keep teasing it like Chekhov's gun. Uh, Bronze Age, Bronze Age pervert. Who is he? What is he? How does it relate to these things that we've not really been talking about, but talking around so far? <laughs> well, actually, we have been talking about it because there's a great segue here. the the tw The obsession with Twitter reflects one of the broader problems with many of the phenomena we're talking about, namely that they seem to be LARPing. <laughs> They're in a a kind of fantasy universe a lot of the time of their own creation, one that is much easier to sustain when you deal in mostly digital or virtual platforms. That makes it tell people, I'm, I hate being going full John Pod here, but LARPing means live action role-playing. It's when yes. people dress up and pretend to be something that they're not. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, go on. <laughs> I don't That's know why guys just sitting here like he's stoned laughing at this entire podcast. He's so. just amused. He's looking at uh, two different stages of his possible future. And that's why he's <laughs> just, he's, it's like the end of 2001 a space odyssey for him, okay. uh, which maybe I don't know if that's a really a laughter inducing scene, but anyway, yes, enough, enough of this pointless digression. Bronze age pervert internet dude, actual name, Kostin Alamariu, Romanian Yale PhD student, a Straussian theorist. Mm -hmm. That is, he he's on the Straussian coaching tree somewhere. The uh, I think it would be a professor. He's got Leo fourth, Strauss, third or fourth generation. Yeah, Leo Strauss point. taught someone who taught someone who taught him. Uh -huh. But the Leo Strauss, we're not going to be able to explain Leo Strauss in ever. Uh, so, but in brief, philosopher dude who had all sorts of beliefs. Uh, one of which was that learned men throughout history have concealed their true meaning mm -hmm. uh, through irony and omission and other means. And so the, the Bronze Age pervert, Costin, has written this text he calls an exhortation called Bronze Age Mindset. And the point of Bronze Age Mindset is it's to awaken his audience, which is mostly young men, to what Almario identifies as the reality of the present world, which is essentially that it is one that suppresses the authentic expression of masculine virtue. And now, if that were the only point that the text made, I would not really have much of a problem with it. But the problem is that it goes far beyond that in substance to the point that everyone who's not the target audience of Bronze Age mindset is what he calls a bug man or human cockroach and deserves to be suppressed in some way that he leaves ambiguous mm -hmm. uh, and the ideal future of uh, the, the the ideal future that he imagines is one in which the people who are manly men who lift all the time and uh, have have clubs where uh, women aren't allowed to be in and uh, ideally non-white people aren't allowed either although it's okay if you have one or two mm -hmm. strategic reasons this is all, I'm paraphrasing the text here. They all get to conquer the world and re refashion it in their own image. And the people who fall out of this vision, the bug men, the human cockroach, who are trying at the moment to make the world ugly, uh, they get to be 
fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. The blank is never really filled in that well in the text, although at one point, uh, the author imagines his ideal vision of the future as one, and here I'm paraphrasing, in which all of the, the zoos are opened and the, the wild beasts get to rampage through the cities uh, again. So I think this is, it's a Nietzschean thing of the all the people who have been uh, suppressed and and sublimated by existing social mores get to have their day and get to rule the world once again. Mm -hmm. And the, the strong, uh, justice will once again become the will of the stronger as it was in the ancient time. The ancient time, basically a classical antiquity or something like it, being the main thing to which Bronze Age mindset harkens as a model for what society should be like again. And you'll and throughout the text, one of the many worrying aspects of it, aside from the uh, anti-Christianity, the the condemnation of the American founding, is this idea that there's just too many people alive these days. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, wouldn't it be better if there weren't so many of them? And this is what makes me... It's not that hard to put the pieces together as to what the ultimate aim of, of this guy is. And especially if you want to look at the, the sewer that is his Twitter account. He makes things very cl clear about what he actually believes. So that that's a that's a brief summary. But I'm sure there are, you have many questions about. Well, so like so and and so who is into this guy? I mean, like, what is like? Well, why, it, why am I? Why are listeners out there driving with their kids in the car who are clearly confused about what, oh, what mom and dad are listening to? Uh, 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 yeah. Why should why should we care about Bronze Age pervert? Well. In part, we have the Claremont Institute, which has done much great work to thank for this because uh -huh. they decided because they were very online people to that this was something that needed to be taken seriously and not just taken seriously, but given more attention than it would have otherwise. Right. Michael Anton, who is such a hero of this podcast. Oh, yes. Uh, reviewed it for the Claremont Review of Books. Yes, that's right? that's where it began. And since then, there's there's lots of evidence that instead of. And Anton tried to be at least somewhat critical in his review, but it was a very like half-assed criticism. And at least that, that was my takeaway of it, having read it. And if the effect was to sh point the potential fans of this text to something better, I think it had the opposite effect because now there's a lot of evidence that people in Claremont, young dudes in Claremont circles and in the Claremont orbit became aware of this because of what Anton did. But who's the audience? It's the people I was talking about. Well, a lot of them are um, like unemployed or pseudo-employed Straussian political theorists. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so like 20 people. But right. the, the, the broader audience is people who believe that or they, they take some of the complaints and criticisms that are in Bronze Age mindset seriously. And some of them expressed in, the, in prosaic form, I, I think, you can make a case for such as that uh, modern American society treats uh, does not know how to treat the problems of young men very well. Mm -hmm. And in fact, seems to be worsening them um, by all sorts of means. And, but sees the, so sees these parts of the text for whatever reason, looks at other parts of conservatism to say nothing of the mainstream culture, which is just totally written off. And sees those parts of conservatism as having been unable or even unwilling to answer them properly. So that is what drives them into the arms of the Bronze Age pervert. This is the most charitable view. The, the uncharitable view is that these are people who are not as uh, not as successful, not as 
strong, not as popular as they believe they ought to be. And this person has given them an answer and a solution to that perceived current state. So this is what the... It's, this is addressed directly to what I think has been called the precariat, the people who are sort of bubbling on the level of elite status but mm-hmm. aren't really there or are just below it or have been wronged in some way that they now have a reason to believe is not their fault. Although there are, there are parts of the of Bronze Age mindset that exhort people to actually take their, their lives seriously with some amount of agency. Like this sort of basic Jordan Peterson point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it go, again, it goes way beyond that in a way that's extremely disturbing. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. So let's dissect this a little bit. I got zero objection to the claim that modern society is ill-serving young men mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways. The economy is less supportive of all sorts of historically male attributes, male virtues, that kind of strong back and a good work ethic are less of a path to the middle class than they used to be. Um, Right. All those things are perfectly legitimate things to be concerned about. Um, The effects of social media about, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, this podcast is nothing if not a cult to Yuval Levin's, uh, um, arguments about the role of institutions and how institutions are failing. America's got lots of problems. I think a lot of them are driven more by technology than they're driven by like the Cato Institute. Um, but But you can't argue with a Buick. That's right. That's right. That, that ladies and gentlemen is a reference to an argument. Um, I first made in a review of Wendy Shalit's book where she wanted to return to Victorianism and, my the point. Victorian age mindset. Yeah, well, basically it was that was it. And it was just, it was a really dumb argument because one of the reasons why the Victorian age was the way it was was that the level of technological advancement could allow it to be nothing else, right? I mean, like, like she had this stuff in there about how wouldn't it be great if we went back to the days when gentlemen suitors came by your home and left a calling card? saying they would return 24 hours later to visit. Um, and my point was, yeah, that, that sounds awesome. But, you know, there was this thing that came along called the phone, <laughs> you know, which all of a sudden creates, you know, certain customs and traditions to be different than whatever. And anyway, my argument, which I've, you know, I've used this line a million times, is that conservatives like to say that everything's about ideas, because we like arguing with ideas. But a lot of the changes to society came about from technology 
And it's much easier to argue with Nietzsche than it is to argue with the Buick. Right. And so, and this is a problem, I think, with the integralists. I think it's a problem with the Netcons. All these guys want, you know, like Azoni, Deneen, all of them seem to think that, but for the fact that John Locke, um, you know, uttered some wrong ideas and some sort of word magic ensorcelment of the West, that we would still be living in an integral order of nation states. Yeah. And, um, uh, and that the, in the decline in the state of America today is an inevitable and utterly predictable consequence of the second treatise on government, which is just stupid. In yeah. But opinion. in that sense, uh, Hazoni, Deneen, a lot of the, and even Alamar, you have, they have something in common that it has been a feature of conservatism for a long time, namely this idea that at some point we had it good and then we didn't. And it's somebody's fault. And if we can just go back to the point before then, then we'll be fine. Right. So it's just there. Everyone's got a different reason for the fall and everyone's got a different it's time. The, it's wrong terminism, right? Yes. I mean, it's like, I, 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 I can never remember if it, whether it was Richard Weaver or, or Eric Vigellan who argued that it was um, uh, Joachim of Fiore who <laughs> uh, introduced the Gnostic heresies that led us the wrong, that, steered us wrong. I think that was, I think that was Vigellan and then Weaver was uh, William of Ockham. That's, that might be right. That, that might be right. Both, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I like reading both guys, but that's stupid. Um, insofar as it's just like, I, I think intellectual history is really important. I think ideas are really important. Yes. But, <laughs> oh, you do? <laughs> but come on. <laughs> I mean, like. Right. But the, 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 so your argument, <laughs> the, the retort to what you're saying about technology is that in, in, a, in their own twisted, defective way, a lot of these guys at least think they're trying to respond to the problems of the modern world in some way. The ways in which we feel like we're missing something. I mean, as, as you argued in Suicide of the West, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there, there's something about the way we live today that does not supply these uh, fundamental spiritual needs that past orders, whatever their many flaws, uh, were, you could say that they were able to do that. And so the, the challenge in responding to a lot of them, to, to people like this, is to figure out what to do what to actually do in the face of a, 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 the, a modern world that is like that. You can, one answer is to LARP. Now mm-hmm. that we've defined it, I can say it. Mm-hmm. Is to LARP in the way that many of them do and just pretend that there's some very online solution that if you just get rid of all the bug men, that if you just make the government Catholic, then all of your problems will be solved. The other way to do it is to that's one po- That's one way to approach this. I think it's a silly way. The better way to approach it is to think about the world in which you live and try to shore up the the institutions and uh, the civil society and the governing platforms around you and to actually be manfully engaged in, in the world as it is. I, I think that is a mu- that is actually it's more of a challenge, and it's it can be. It can seem more prosaic, I suppose, more, more laborious, but also I, th- I think it's kind of a bit of an adventure. I mean, life properly understood can be an adventure. And I, I think the, the, the romantic appeals that some of these overly LARPing and overly online things are making, they actually have a deeply misplaced romanticism. I get where it comes from. They're, they're trying to create this 
alternative universe that is much more exciting than the one we apparently live in now. But actually, things like starting a family, like uh, running for your local city council, these are the stuff of which a true and virtuous life is made. And that 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 is what I would point people toward. And I think that for all of the problems that the American system of government has right now, we still have this incredible federalist architecture that allows for all sorts of things like that. And I, I think it would be foolish to ignore that or not to take advantage of it, or especially not to try to short up. And it provides us in itself the means to do that. Still, for all of the distortions of it that have been made by the left, for all of the uh, innovations that have been made against it over the past century and more, it still has that capability. And that, that's what I would point people toward. Yeah. So, so there's my peroration. Yeah, Maybe I'll so have another before we end. I, I agree with the peroration, obviously. Um, you know, this is a point I've been making on this podcast since you and I started it so long ago. Um, Get a flashback noise here. First episode. Um, no, it's just like, like with the, with the Sora Mamari crowd, right? Like, if they're actually worried about people's souls and how people live, why can't they focus their energies on taking over Rhode Island? Ah, uh, yes. I, you, right? This is one of the funniest. <laughs> and like, Why not? Um, and it's so much of the stuff. It reminds me of like the, the Berkeley protesters who were like, who did the sit-ins and they'd be like, we demand the ability to audit classes. We demand the ability to, um, uh, have better parking. We demand um, pass fail grades, and we demand a total and complete withdrawal of American forces from from, from <laughs> Vietnam. And it's like the grandiosity of it is is sort of ridiculous to me. It's this thing about like if it was really about how people like the thing I loved about that book, The Reactionary Mind, um, which I thought was also BS, but it was like I liked it because it was a class. It was well written, and it was part of this great tradition of, of intellectual crankery on the right. Mm -hmm. That's sort of just, you know, like dudes who wear capes. Like we have a great tradition of that on the right. And I love that. I'm stuff. still waiting for that piece, by the way. The um, cape wearers. Um, I'm just amazed more people haven't started wearing capes. I really oh, am. It, no, it'll start happening again. But um, yeah, that, that, by the way, the author of that book, uh, a couple of weeks ago, wrote an anti-integralist essay. So David, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I, just, I can't remember his name, but it, Michael it, Warren Davis. Yeah. Michael Warren is like, it was a, it was a smart and interesting book and I have lots of disagreements with it. He's a Chester bro. But yes, right. Uh, which is uh, fans of G.K. Chesterton. Yes. Yes, yes. And I'm a fan of G.K. Chesterton. So. Uh, I called him fat in the pages of National Review. So that, that that's. Uh, has that gotten you in trouble? I mean, I think that's an objectively true fact. No, it's just something that I, it was the first piece I wrote for National Review magazine. I You fat shamed G.K. Chesterton. Yes. Well, great. Bully for you. I'm so glad I've been such an influence on your career. <laughs> so, no, well, but, as, as you've said for many years, between the two of us, we're a normal. That's right. Uh, normally we we fit average person. out to a normally physically fit person. Yeah, right. Um, so, no, but look, the, this idea, which I have heard for decades since I've been in Washington of these people who are like, I would have been happier living, um, you know, a, a throw-in 17th century life, but that's not possible anymore and blah, 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 blah. And I'm stuck with this common culture and all that kind of stuff. It is incredibly easy. It's easier than ever before to be a self-sufficient. If you're comfortable with a certain level of poverty, right? Which if you're talking about living 
like a surf, which some of these people, I mean, like the review in the American conservative of this reactionary mind book, the reviewer is talking about how people were happier being serfs um, because at least they had an integral social order. And like, if you actually read how serfs lived, um, forget how unbelievably miserable it was like open <laughs> sores and, and uh, just relentlessly stewed boughs and your kids dying at enormous rates. Forget all that stuff. If you wanted to recreate that lifestyle, it's pretty friggin' easy. I take $10,000 and go out into the, and go homestead in Alaska or something. And you can poke at the dirt in absolute backbreaking misery too. Um, but that's not I'm what sold, but that's not what people want to do, right? What people want to do is they want to cherry pick the past. It's very much like the, um, like you guys are too young to remember. Uh, there used to be this huge craze about reincarnation and past lives in the seventies and eighties. And Whenever you would have these people on the Donnie, Phil Donahue show or, or early Oprah or whatever, they'd all talk about, yes, in a, in a previous life, I was, I was a Persian princess or in a previous life, I was a, I was a aide to Caesar or in a previous life, I was a great general. They never said, yeah, in a previous life, I was tasked to clean out the sewers in Constantinople with my bare hands yeah. and I died of dysentery just, at the age of 14. This just shows how bespoke new ageism can get because in, in like actual, in the religious traditions that, that actually believe in reincarnation, there, there are ways it can work out where you have to like spend a couple cycles as an, as a cockroach or something. That's right. So like, yeah, it makes it's you, you get all the good parts, but like if you're, if your garb is bad in one life, you'll, you'll be a squirrel in the next. So anyway, my, my point is, is like a big part of the driving a lot of this stuff is that they think that other people are living wrong. Yeah. And if they actually want to have agency and make their own lives more, like what they think society is to be like, they could do that, you know? Um, and this is a very left-wing argument historically, because this is like where the communes of the sixties, this, this very argument that these right-wingers are now making is why Bernie Sanders lived on a commune. It is why the kibbutzes were created. I mean, this, this is an old idea. It's just sort of the, the, la the right hasn't realized that they're going to have to crap in outhouses for a little while and eat at, at monastery tables altogether to realize that a lot of their rhetoric is BS. But the, but the broader point is, is I, I am just, after an hour of this conversation, I am less convinced <laughs> that there's a, there's a real there there to most of it. And the thing I keep going back to is um, common good constitutionalism. Like, to me, this is just basically a argument for a handful of smart, ambitious kids with a little bit of a radical sensibility who really don't like the idea of climbing the greasy pole of careerism through the Federalist Society. And they'd rather leapfrog ahead to the, to be the president of some alternative organization. You know, it's like a lot of these campuses are changing to this bull moose project thing from young conservatives or, or young Republicans, because it, it's a thing that lets them be, you know, the next Charlie Kirk rather than like the assistant treasurer, the, you know, whoever's the head of these organizations. And it's just a career advancement kind of strategy let's replace the the existing order. Let's say it's all corrupt so that, you know, we can be in charge of our own little organizations and feel like we're bigger fish than we really are. Yes. I think that is a big part of it, but I read, I've read some, not all of the Vermeule book in which common good constitutionalism is explained. So I, I have a, I have a sense of what it's about. And the, the, the frustrating thing about the text is that, 
there are occasionally these these points where Vermeule makes arguments that I understand, such as every society will have some kind of moral foundation. So there's this really broad, generalized, defensible platitude. That, mm-hmm. That's the core. And it's I say, yes, okay. And then from there, it's like, and therefore, <laughs> like... The Constitution can be whatever I decide it is. Right. So there, there's the, the, there's just a lot of missing work there. And but the the thing that I've found more constructive is to try to have arguments on the terms of these uh, maybe platitudes is too uh, dismissive a word of these of these basic points that these people feel like are their weapons. Because in their view, conservatives like us have just not engaged on that ground at all. And I, I found that when conservatives like us actually do engage on those grounds and say, like, no, the uh, American constitutional and political tradition is good. No, uh, Catholicism has prospered in the American political system. Making arguments like this on on the on same terms or on similar ground they do they just don't know what to do they they're they run out their their list of clichés quickly is exhausted and they start just uh resorting to name calling or other other things because that that's just that's just what they've got because they they don't they don't think that actual moral arguments they don't think that conservatism as presently constituted is capable of making uh forceful moral arguments now if it doesn't then they'll have a greater advantage, but I think it is capable of doing so and should do so because when it does, then it deprives them of their oxygen. Yeah. But I mean, the reason for that conviction among a lot of these guys is because they have no idea what about the history that comes before them. Right. I mean, like we've talked about this a million times, but you know, so much of the, the, the integral stuff that argument was had, right? You know, um, between you know Bozell and 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 Meyer. That's not, Frank Meyer, National Review uh, literary editor. For that's many, right for many and, years and, and managing editor and yes. the sort of uh, even though he never came up with the phrase fusionism. No, Bozell called him a, right. called it fusionism. Um, uh, and you know, this idea that somehow conservatives have never talked about nationalism or national sovereignty before is just. Yeah, just look at the crazy the, the Sharon statement. There's plenty of that in there. Yeah, Sharon statement being the uh, founding <laughs> document of the. We're just gonna get caught. We're gonna be caught in a, a, an explanatory loop. That's we right. Won't actually, the, Yard- the conversation won't move forward. Yeah, Sharon statement was written uh, <laughs> forward, being the direction that is the opposite of backward. Mostly by uh, M. Stanton Evans and William F. Buckley, uh, um, and signed as the founding charter of Young Americans for Freedom. Um, now, now, since we've made we've we've place some Chekhov guns, or as I once called them to the amusement of some of my colleagues, Chekhov shotguns. For uh-huh. some reason, I thought they were shotguns. It doesn't have to be a shotgun. It can it be any kind of gun. But it's more exciting if it's a shotgun. Uh-huh. Areas where conservatism has fallen short. Uh-huh. So where, where, where you, what did you want to ask me about that? Or what, I, I, what did you want to well, say Well, I mean, that? like, so, so first of all, all right, so when I hear this conservatism for, fallen short stuff, um, first of all, duh. Right. I mean, it's not like in the 20 years I was at National Review or the nearly 30 years I've been in and around the American Enterprise Institute. Anyone ran down the hallways just high fiving about how we've fixed it all. We're done. That's not what Robert Bork did when he was here. (laughs) (laughs) And um, 
you know, I mean, yeah, there was some celebration when the Berlin Wall came down, but, you know, I mean, although I was in college for that, but like, for the most part, you know, conservatism has been, you know, all about acknowledging all sorts of problems, including among conservatives, mm -hmm. right? So to me, so much of it is a straw man thing. It's like, if you take seriously Tucker's claim that for the last 30 years, libertarians have been running Washington, then what do I have to talk to you about? Because that's garbage. It's just stupid. And yeah. um, you have to, you have to come up with, so like, it depends on what the specific complaint is. So to be concrete about it, um, I think that the complaints about, you know, and I've made that you've heard me make this point a million times, but like when the, uh, when the sort of more populist guys say that, you know, the problem is the establishment overpromised and underdelivered. Yeah. Right. I think that's absolutely true. So did the populists. Right. I mean, so, um, and that's the part they always leave out is like, so yeah, Paul Ryan went around saying, uh, if we win the next election, we'll be able to repeal Obamacare. He was wrong. Right. Um, Ted Cruz went around saying we can repeat, we can shut down the government and repeal Obamacare with only 40 senators um, in the Senate, which was also wrong. Right. It was just a lie. And it was like the so much of the the sort of the Tea Party ish, for want of a better label, um, uh, right talked about things as if they were like, you know, we're the Green Lantern Party. And if we just marshal enough will, we can do anything. And it doesn't mean we have to win over new voters. It doesn't mean we actually have to have the votes in the Senate or the House. Um, it's all contests, all battles that we lose, we lose because those Republicans weren't strong enough um, or didn't uh, uh, show enough um, courage. And that's... The, just a bad, that's bad political analysis. And I think that that argument has laid the foundation for, first of all, that was what, I mean, not to, uh, you know, steal from off of your colleague Noah Rothman's plate, but um, that climate is what gave the permit, the Republican party, the permission structure to um, uh, vote for Trump because Trump's whole message was, it's not about ideas. It's not about, it's not about, you know, policy it's about strength you got to look strong and be strong strong like bull and somehow if i'm just strong and i always fight that is a substitute for actually winning arguments and achieving things and that predicate was laid by the by the 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 avant-garde of those who say the fusionists fail well let, let's not forget that hillary is terrible now, that was terrible. also an important predicate yeah for, I, for voting important permission structure to vote for trump in 2016 yeah uh, so again, overdetermined phenomenon. Yeah, right. But Hillary explains a lot of it. Uh, so wait, wait so where do you think I have you, information that will lead to the arrest of Hillary? Uh, nope. Sorry. I'm not going to finish that too dangerous. So you, let's just put it this way. You concede this point in your, um, efforts like St. Jerome amongst the masses to convert them back to the true faith of conservatism. You concede that we had lost our way for a while. What do you think is the best single or one or two? Um, failures of the 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 old or the ancien regime, circa say twenty fourteen or twenty ten, or well, it's complicated because actually the Republican Party, which is distinct from the conservative movement, let us let us yes. be clear about that. At that point, looked pretty good. It was it was winning a lot, but I think the broader problem is that 
and th- this is a huge big picture take that I'm still trying to work out all the details of. I think there has been a kind of post-Reagan, post-Cold War aimlessness for conservatism. I think even still, we haven't quite figured out what we're really about. And I, I wrote an essay in the, I guess it's still the most recent issue of National Review, but it won't be soon, about two essays that have been written uh, in the past, let's see, 2003, so past 20 years, one David Frum's Unpatriotic Conservatives essay for National mm-hmm. Review, and another Michael Anton's Slight 93 election essay for the Clement Review of Books. And my argument was that these are essentially the same essay. They're just, their targets are different, but they use the same martial rhetoric, even drawing from similar uh, imagery uh, pertaining to the war on terror. But the point of them was to argue that certain conservatives that the authors didn't like were really bad and should not have power, and that the author and people that the author likes should have power. And one was about, chose as its main metric the Iraq war as its criterion for what a conservative should be. The other chose Trump as the criterion. And I think these are, these ended up, it's been a mistake. It was a mistake in both instances for, uh, for these conservative figures to identify these transitory phenomena and figures as their lodestar. But I think that's reflective of this broader problem of conservatism not really knowing what its lodestar should be in this entire period. It, it's keep it's looking for one. And I think the most charitable way to look at the all of the ideas that we've been discussing today is that they're looking for one too, but they're looking again in the wrong places. And I, I find uh, the American political tradition that conservatism was founded to defend is the place we should be looking. And for some reason, people are much more interested in having fights with each other about jobs in the beltway or in uh, just having bitter personal ad hominem uh, internecine wars with each other over things that actually don't end up mattering as much in the grand scheme of things. So that, that, that answers your question in a, in a very broad sense in a, in a specific sense, I guess that a lot of these, a common thread to a lot of these complaints. uh, And since we're now in the 20th anniversary of it is it, it comes down to, uh, the conservatism's relationship to the Iraq war, which is mm-hmm. seen as this epochal mistake that totally discredited the, uh, the conservatism that preceded it. This is probably the thing that comes up the most other than uh, the market fundamentalism as the thing that populist types cite as their reason that the conservatism of the past has been bad. Uh, but yeah, I, th- those are those are the complaints that are made. Uh, there are other ones, I guess, I guess the other would be, they, they would interpret um, moral culture, cultural defeats in this way. So the, the, the failure of the fight against gay marriage, for example, that this somehow this would have been something that a sufficient application of will could have arrested. Maybe it could have, but is that the fault of the conservatism of the past? I mean, this is, the Bush was, the, uh, the Bush people were very, <laughs> They did not like gay marriage either. They made it a, a central issue of the 2004 election. But I guess the fact that the conservatism that existed then failed to stop it means that it is totally discredited. There's no, and as I said earlier, the great thing about having arguments like this is that because people who make them weren't in, in charge or weren't as powerful as they wanted to be at the time, they can simply retroactively say, this was a bad thing. It wasn't my fault. It was the fault of the people who were in power then. Therefore, if I'm in power, then I can do something better. 
Uh, but yeah, so but I still think that failure to engage on substantive moral issues can be if if conservatism of the variety that is not represented by the people we've been talking about doesn't do that, then the people that we have been criticizing in this podcast will have an easier time in finding appeal and not just among uh, the based youth of the Acela Corridor. So that, that's what I'm trying to, to go about and trying to get to make happen. I wish you luck in your endeavors. Um, Thank you. Um, I just have one last question. I, I will save my response uh, to this farrago of half arguments um, that you allude to about the failures of, of the right um, for another time, but because um, we'd be here all day. Um, I, 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 I will say that as just as a matter of sort of for want of a better term, conservative metaphysics. Um, the pursuit of a single North Star for a political movement is a juvenile desire. And um, uh, as you know, I'm against all forms of philosophical and existential and explanatory monism, right? And single Including issues. that one? Including that one. Uh, no, oh, my point Only is... Only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> oh, no, my point is, is that... Um, uh, I mean, if your North Star is the Bible, right, that's fine. But that's your North Star for your soul. That's not your North Star for um, a big sloppy political movement that overlaps with an even sloppier political party. Um, this, was al- this was always the one criticism, even when I was the biggest booster of the Claremont Review of Books imaginable, right? Um, they were the ones who asked me to review their anniversary, their big com- compendium of books because they knew I was such a booster. Fun fact, I don't think I've ever told anybody this. I was the one who told Tucker Carlson he had to subscribe to the Claremont Review of Books back in the day. So it's amazing the effect that one life can have. It's, it's a total butterfly effect, right? Um, and uh, but he, uh, but my one criticism from the beginning of of the Claremont approach was this idea that there was a single fundament, right? Like they wanted constitutional fundamentalism to be the 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 the, the, the spine of conservatism. Now I take a backseat to nobody about wanting to be uh, loyal and faithful to the constitution of the United States, but that can't be the only thing that conservatism is about. Well, conservatism it, is a, is a, it's a portfolio of commitments like it, an ideology is. In the context of Claremont, especially the Wilmore Kendall's review of crisis of the house divided, Harry Jaffa's uh, magisterial. Famous, yeah. Mag- I think that's, yeah, we can use the adjective. He pointed this this very problem out, and it's interesting that the Claremont Institute, which owes so much to Jaffa, has fallen into this problem that uh, I, I would, again, be paraphrasing here that, and, and it is kind of funny in hindsight because uh, Kendall was evincing skepticism of Lincoln, which was at the time something National Review was more into. But the basic point stands, namely that if if we're not careful, Jaffa will lead us into, treat every, essentially treat every crisis as the Civil War and always be looking for a Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is something that Claremont today is is guilty of. I, th- I think that the president of, of the Claremont Institute said something to this almost exact effect one or two years ago. And that, that can be dangerous because, I mean, you, you ideally, you don't want, it's, it's great that we had Lincoln in the situation of the Civil War. But the reason we had the Civil War was it was a failure of 
decades of statesmanship. You didn't right. want to be in that situation where the, the Republic was hanging by a thread. Right. That's the great irony of the Claremont Institute. It was all about constitutional fundamentalism, but it lionized and celebrated as the greatest moment in American history, the moment that we suspended the Constitution because of a crisis. And you create this sort of hunger for similar crises. And that's what the Flight 93 election basically sort of set the framework for. It's like, yeah, so Trump has a thumbless grasp of the Constitution and the Bible and conservatism and all this kind of stuff. But he is going to save us from this apocalyptic fate of having Hillary Clinton be president. And so not only should we suspend, you know, like Claremont Institute's big thing was statesmanship, right? We're going to suspend our commitment to statesmanship. We're going to suspend our commitment to sort of constitutional sort of whatever, because this crisis requires it. And I don't think the crisis required it. The hunger for the crisis required them to make those arguments. And that yeah. was the, that was the failure. But all right, so I didn't mean to get into this. We're going very long. Um, but can we even be said to have digressed if we began as a digression? I think every now and then we left the digressions for the substance. Um, <laughs> right. But um, is there, last, I swear this is my last question, unless you say something so provocative that I have to follow up. Be careful. Uh, <laughs> so I have this argument. I've made it a couple times now. Uh, borrowing from Edmund Burke's Birds of Prey speech about how part of his argument against imperialism in the Hastings stuff and the East India Company stuff was that what England was doing in the colonies wasn't just bad for Indians and cruel. It was making English people bad. It was twisting and distorting mm, yes. and corrupting their souls and bringing, and we were sending young people off to go do things in the colonies and they would learn the wrong lessons from it. And they came back to England and they were bad people. And or that, that was his concern. When I look at the young people of the last seven, eight years who have, they haven't gone off to go uh, do work for the, in some colony. They've instead gone off to the digital frontier of social media and all this kind of stuff. And the, and, and they are doing the missionary work of owning the libs, <laughs> right? Is so many of them have internalized this idea that being a, being a dick is a sign of strength, right? That being rude, that being coarse, that being um, insulting is in and of itself what the time, these times require. What time is it? Yeah. It's time to be an asshole, right? And- um, <laughs> That's the motto of this podcast. Yeah, and um, um, and so like, I don't buy it, right? I mean, I, I just think it's really dumb, but there's this whole generation now or half generation of young people who go work on the Hill who think that coming up with really sick, twisted memes is like, what comms work is right. And <laughs> well, um, think of Madison Cawthorn's uh, belief that right. his comms was his main job. And, um, uh, and you know, my interactions with these, these kids from, you know, the DC and New York Republican club, I mean, um, or those, these kids from this bull moose project thing, right. You know, when you see how they behave online, when you see how they, you know, this guy, Jason Hart on Twitter keeps unearthing these tweets from these people, you know, or, or the way, um, what's his name? The guy from Revolver. Oh, Darren Beatty. Darren Beatty, who was like Tucker's Rasputin, right? Well, interesting. Some of these guys are hardcore racists, misogynists, 
and they think it's a triumph of their will to sort of not hide it. And like right. these days, one if you see someone who makes what seems like a often of uh, in this world, if you see someone say something cleverly provocative, but also spectacularly asinine, if you go look at their Twitter bio, it's like, oh, they were a, a Claremont Publius fellow or a Lincoln fellow or whatever. And it is uh, many such cases. Yes. indeed. And it's like they're training these kids. Like the first thing you have to know here isn't necessarily what Polybius's idea of the mixed constitution was. <laughs> the first thing you have to know is that you have to ask questions like, why are all feminists ugly and that kind of thing? And it's very juvenile, uh -huh. but that seems to be a feature, not a bug of these people. What is that? Well, so just as I would fault the Claremont Institute these days for falling short of Jaffa, and interestingly, when I wrote my uh, criticism of Bronze Age mindset, initially Darren Beatty called Jaffa a dime store philosopher mm -hmm. like, relative to the author of Bronze Age mindset. He deleted this tweet subsequently perhaps thinking better of it or perhaps thinking for strategic reasons. I would also criticize the people that you're describing trying to be performative, performatively manly for actually not being manly at all. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is not demonstrating manly virtue. They're, they're doing at best a parody of it. That is typically exclusively an online phenomenon. They have, many of them have no interest in actually doing things IRL. That's in real life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they have, maybe never touched grass. That's another uh, common Twitterism for like, stop looking at your feed and actually go just leave your house and right. look at the world around you. There, there is, it's almost like the, there's an attempt to take a kind of shortcut to actual manliness by just demonstrating a hideous caricature of it as though that would somehow give you the real thing. I don't know where that c comes from exactly. I think part of it may be just a total um, deprivation or deficit of, of male role models in modern society to tell people like that. Because let's be honest, th there are some counterexamples to this, but it's mostly young dudes. Mm -hmm. that, that's where it's like, I don't know, 90 plus percent of the people you're talking about are young dudes. And... They need better role models. They need better moral foundations. They need to log off. They need to do something in the real world. And yeah, that's that. I so that doesn't really fully answer where it comes from. Although I, I mostly agree with your diagnosis of where there are a lot of incentives in the perverse environs these people inhabit that point them in this direction. But it's not going to point them anywhere productive. It's going only going to make them more frustrated and worse people and will only make it more difficult for themselves to look in the mirror in the morning. So with that, Jack Butler, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, how long did we go guy? Oh, that's not oh, as bad pfft. as I thought. Let's um, keep going. <laughs> uh, you forget. I wanted to do the whole, uh, uh, Jerry Lewis. Oh, I haven't forgotten. Marathon I, I, version I, I of the podcast and just do a live podcast for 24 I hours. I thank God every day that I managed to avoid. This. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Your own you know, personal Vietnam. <laughs> you need uh, just a lot of special guest stars to come in. Um, all right, Jack Butler, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and, you know, we'll have you back. Okay. Okay, so uh, I wish I could say, I really do wish I could say, 
that Jack Butler has left the studio, but in fact, he has not left the studio. <laughs> He's, he is staring at me like I'm not a member of his white power gang in prison <laughs> a, across the uh, prison cafeteria um, with that, that, that dead eye stare of his. Um, like that, a doll's eyes. It makes me feel very unsafe. Um, and uh, um, so I will save some of my more elaborate final thoughts uh, for Guy's favorite podcast of the week, the solo podcast tomorrow or Friday, I'm sorry. And, uh, um, and I apologize in advance to, I know a subset of listeners of this podcast who are like, why do I need to know about any of this? Um, and I think the, the really hopeful thing for our country and for the conservative movement is that you actually might not have to. <laughs> um, but just in case you should know that people like Jack, um, and I are, are, are on the lookout for this pseudo Nietzschean garbage that is, um, encroaching upon, um, conservative principle. Listeners want to know more and contact me. That's right. Uh, I won't tell you how, but you can, if you want, figure it out. And, uh, um, you can go to the the secret meetings in the catacombs with Jack and figure out what to do next. Um, and with that, uh, thanks for listening and I will see you next time. <sighs> no, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.